Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Hey, uh, did something happen on Tuesday? I mean, I came home and watched a little YouTube, ate too much, fell asleep in my chair for a little bit, then I went to bed. I feel like I missed something. Yeah, okay, right. You had to guess it was coming, right? I mean, I pretty much had to do this. Well, on today's episode, because both segments are a little bit longer, first, we'll talk about the ultimate eternal judge, and second, and finally, we'll talk about powerful, but much less so, judges. So, put on your long black robe, pants are optional after, not before. Throw your favorite gavel in one of those huge pockets, and straighten that long, white, curly, powdered wig, because court is in session, so here we go. Under the judgment of God. That answers your question, right? If you're like most everybody, most every American, honestly, most people around at least the industrialized world, your question is most likely, what happened in the midterm election? What's wrong with America? And I maintain that we are most definitely under the judgment of God. And I believe we're seeing it in two main ways, and I believe it may not be as simple as you may first think. I'll explain as we go. So you may not believe this, but I am somewhat into politics. I'm not a political pundit or a wonk, whatever that is, or a politician by any stretch. I'm not even sure I'd vote me into office, but I am, shock of all shocks, into politics. So for me, election nights, well, those are fascinating, especially when you know you're going to win and win big. So election night, I had coverage from the blaze running, because it's better than listening to any of the media talking heads. I had the Fox News website open, diligently refreshing, watching vote totals, running through scenarios, planning how I would celebrate and gloat in the sweet, warm glow of victory. And then as polls closed, as more returns came in, as some of these stretch goals fell the wrong direction, then some of the likelies fell, then those on the Blaze coverage started getting more nervous, more agitated. I started getting angry and distraught, depressed. I started to eat my feelings. I started doing math to try to figure out how this seat could still be won or that state could fall the right direction. And then I went to bed, way too late, pretty much hating humanity, hating the absolute evil morons that are apparently making up the United States. It's safe to be honest here, right? I woke up, as you might imagine, in no better of a mood. I mean, I I didn't get enough sleep, and it was early in the morning, plus... My brain kicked right back in. Oh, I wonder who, you know, where are we standing this morning? I threw on my readers, which first thing in the morning don't help as much as I'd like, grabbed the phone, endured that uh, evil blue light that we're all supposed to eschew, and checked the Fox News election results. So now I'm angry and I have to get ready for work. And this is where I really started thinking. I knew that Glenn Beck and some of his crew would bring a spiritual element into their shows in the morning after broadcasts. Of course, he's of the Mormon faith, so I'm very careful when I hear his faith-based take on anything. I was absolutely correct about my assumption. For the following two days, he most definitely stated the same things many have stated. We need to turn back to God, of course, being Mormon and that being a works-based religious system. 
It contained elements of, we must do the hard work, and God's on our side, we need to get on His, and God's waiting to bless us after we do all we can do. Now, I knew that various politicians, media personalities, and commentators would start invoking something about God in this election. I've yet to be wrong in my assumption. But I wanted to think deeper. The absolute insanity leading up to this election, the the evil that we're seeing across the country and the world, the tone-deaf nature of our political elites, the clear difference between the two main political parties, and for the lack of a better word, the mania or the psychosis the barefaced, unmasked evil that we see all around us, and yet, at best, we had a red trickle. Not a splash, not a wave, not a tsunami. This is more than voter apathy. This is more than dollars spent on advertising. This is more than cheating at the polls, although eh, there were definitely some shenanigans, as always. So what is it? Why did humans, image bearers of God, Christian or not, But with the laws of God written on our hearts, with our consciences as our moral guide, why did Americans not come out with a clear mandate to the evil in our country? That it's not welcome here. And and as I said, I believe this is judgment on America by God. There's literally no other logical answer to this question. I mean, am I way off base here? Think about all the stuff that's gone on in the last two years because of the Democrats. Regarding COVID, blue states and districts with extended remote learning or vax or mask mandates for kids, the federal government forcing the vax on military and healthcare personnel, the attempt to make everyone working for a company of a certain size get a vax, these speeches shaming and condemning those of us that refuse to get the clot shot going so far as to tell us we're bad Christians if we don't get it. The insistence that masks stop viruses when they literally can't. The denial that the vaccine is neither safe nor effective until they admit that it may cause problems. And oh, well, we never tested it for transmission. Plus, it won't stop you from getting COVID. The bullying of adults and children. The firing of people because they wouldn't get an untested novel chemical injection like they were told to do. The lies about how the unvaxxed were the cause of all the problems, the literal murder for cash in the hospitals, the refusal to to allow real doctors to practice their profession, the demonization and banning of the drugs that Fauci and his ilk deemed to be not profitable enough, let's be honest, the yelling, spitting, the sticks-up noses, the refusal for families to see loved ones as they died, the refusal for people to visit friends or family in the hospital, the refusal to allow our seniors to see their families unless it was through a rubber body condom or a plexiglass cage, all topped off with the left jumping on board the COVID amnesty bandwagon. Let me say this, forgive, but never forget, and push for justice to be done. Not one inch of amnesty, not now, not ever. Regarding school, the push to change history from the real history of the United States to some stupid racist and frankly made up, at least how they were going to teach it, 1619 Project. School boards, teachers, media, and the politicians telling parents to sit down and shut up or risk getting arrested because they're in charge of raising your child now. The shaming of children because of their skin color or the teaching of them to hate themselves because of their skin color. The fight to allow boys playing dress up into the girls' bathrooms, then into the girls' locker rooms, then into girls' sports, seriously injuring some of these girls de facto or literally sexually molesting many, many girls, 
kids being shamed because of their political or religious beliefs, the psychotic, deranged, perverse flood of freak of nature, woke activists posing as teachers, the sexual grooming of our kids, specifically girls, and the push to first turn our kids gay, then to shove into destructive practices, grooming them to believe they're a different gender, which is literally, biologically, scientifically impossible. Regarding energy, we went from around $2 a gallon for gas to the highest per gallon gas has ever been in this country, and now we're still 75% or more higher than when we had actual energy independence. Pipeline shut down, leases not approved or sold, like mandated by law, the demonization of not only big oil, but also apparently big local gas station owner, saying that they're just greedy and should be giving away all the gas for cost. The promise to shut down the very power plants that keep America running, opting for useless and pointless solar and wind. The push to electric cars, even after various blackouts in certain blue states, proving that this is a death sentence. Literally. Energy prices through the roof as we head into winter, causing many to choose between food, electricity, gas, water, and other essentials as they see their income, if they have any, and their savings, if they have any, go bye-bye faster than ever before. And while we're on the economy, record high inflation, but we're told there isn't any, that it's transitory, that it's short-term, that it's fine, that it's a good thing, that you're doing better than you ever have before bragging that those on social security will get the biggest raise in history then lying and attempting to walk it back because whoops uh, that means we've got massive inflation food prices up choices down gas prices up the selling of our strategic reserve of oil in order to you know fudge the gas numbers car prices up if you can find any adderall shortages diaper shortages baby food shortages and while we're on food Besides the prices of everything being up, baby, adult, pet food, and the choices being limited or non-existent, what's with all of the fires and other incidents at food storage and processing plants? As of June, there have been 29 fires alone in 2022. As of July, 98 food manufacturing facilities destroyed in 2021 and 2022 combined. What about the push by the WEF to have us all eating plant-based and bug-based proteins? Looking at the WEF, while I've mentioned them, this religion of man-caused global warming is out of control. We're literally watching those in power sacrifice humans around the world by not allowing them the fossil-fueled energy they desperately need so as to stop the globe from warming one degree Celsius. The insistence that man can cause global warming with complete disregard to all actual data, the massive amounts of money, our tax dollars, being funneled out of our country into other countries in the name of green, the usage of even more tax dollars to push the green hell agenda here at home, when quite literally only a few percent, a vast minority, want anything to do with this stupidity, because the rest of us see it for what it is pointless garbage, social engineering, and a little bit of soft reparations in there. Uh, speaking of reparations, what about the racial divide that opened up under Obama, somewhat closed up under Trump, now being scraped raw by Biden again? The attempt to redistribute wealth via programs like the Student Loan Forgiveness Program, as well as others. The absolute racism of the left, just like always, telling blacks that they're too stupid, 
too helpless, they lack self-control, they lack civility, and the list goes on, essentially calling them dumb animals, exactly what Darwin thought the Negro and the savages were. Very close to ape, right? Now, oddly enough, that's what, uh, that's what Hitler thought, too. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? And while we're on war, why are we funneling tens of billions, if not over a hundred billion dollars of once again our tax dollars to a country for a war that we have no stake in, except for the fact that the president and his drugged out crack horse son are uh, as corrupt as Ukraine is and have many secrets and dealings they'd rather not have come out into the light of day. And if you think our involvement in Ukraine has any point other than that, well, you must be listening to network news. Back home, why did we allow and are allowing riots by violent mobs, destroying and occupying massive sections of our cities? Oh, I forgot. Because they were black or Black Lives Matter sympathizers, and they were upset. And again, being much less evolved, they can't be expected to express themselves like the much more evolved whitey. Right, Democrats? Racist anyone? At the same time, if you were within a few miles of the Capitol on January 6th, you know, the day democracy almost died, you need to be beaten, thrown in prison on trumped-up charges, tortured while you're in there, not allowed contact with even your lawyers, put in solitary or isolation, enduring Nazi, ah, oh, there's that group again, style tactics of re-education without a trial for well over a year now, and that's just the grandmother that sauntered through the Capitol, politely speaking to others, holding doors, saying, excuse me. The lies about how many police died on January 6th. The total is zero. Only one person died. It was an unarmed woman crawling through a window behind another man, and a rogue shouldn't have a badge criminal of a cop shot and murdered her in cold blood. Speaking of grandmothers, what's up with our Department of Injustice? Why is the FBI now a Gestapo? Huh, what? Name sounds familiar. And who who are now the enforcers of, once again, Grandma singing a hymn outside a baby murder mill. You know, now we need to try that case federally, even though it was a big nothing locally. And old organ grinder Granny, she needs to go away for a little while. And how about those maniacal baby murderers, huh? Because a bad but old ruling was overturned, now allowing the states to decide if they want to kill babies or not. You know, the left lies through their false teeth, hissing about how the right wants to force women to be pregnant and have babies, and how they'll take away your right to birth control, and blah, 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 all nonsense. And that's how the left works, though. Get a toe in the door, and then shove their entire bloated, greasy, stinking, rotting corpse of a body eh, through as fast as they can. That's not how the right has ever worked. But now companies and our own military will fly or bus you wherever you need to go in order to kill your baby. And people on the left celebrating their abortions. NPR literally airing the sounds of a vacuum evacuation of a baby from a mother's womb. All the while demonizing centers that want to help women, showing them an ultrasound, provide assistance physically and emotionally, and maybe... Huh, Oh, the horror of it all. Even share the love of Christ with them. Yeah, those are the uh, the evil places that apparently need to be firebombed, as the DOJ has done nothing to investigate those little acts of domestic terrorism. But all that said, shockingly, I'd have to say that religion, except for what I've mentioned, probably the least attacked of all these areas. I've got my theories as to why. Now, need I go on? I could. You could, too. So... How could it be possible that human beings, image bearers of God, 
voted for more of this. And make no mistake, we did. Overwhelmingly, we did vote for more of this. This year, there were 35 Senate seats up for election. As of right now, 12 have gone blue, and at least one, if not two more, will also go blue. All 435 House seats were up for election. As of right now, 189 have gone blue, and another 26, possibly more, will go blue. This year, 36 governor positions were up for election. At least 16 went blue, with the chance of a few more. Three states, Michigan, Vermont, and California, all voted in constitutional amendments to codify the right to abortion with no limits. Kentucky failed to vote in a constitutional amendment, saying there was no guaranteed right to abortion. And Montana, oh, Montana may take the prize for the most evil. They voted down a law requiring babies that were born after surviving the attempt to murder them in the womb to be treated as a human, as a U.S. citizen, and to be given life-saving, you know, human care. Which means doctors can just toss them in a closet and let them cry it out. You know, until they die. We legalized a little weed, little Mary Jane, the doob, you know, marijuana in Missouri, South Dakota, North Dakota, Arkansas, and Maryland. And Oregon voted in a measure, or it appears at least that it's going to pass, to make law enforcement the decision makers as to if you're allowed to purchase a firearm, and then they limit you to only 10 rounds in a magazine. You know, for your safety. And we also voted in in Minnesota, their first openly transgender... Something. I don't care what he got voted in for as much as I don't care that his stringy, nasty, poorly dyed pink hair, his lipstick, which complements his five o'clock shadow, and his large earrings make him feel like he's a woman. In New Hampshire, a chick who decided a buzz cut, hormones, and a stud pierced through the bridge of her nose makes her a man. Oh, that was the, the first trans man to be elected to any state legislature. Congratulations, New Hampshire. In Michigan, they re-elected one Dana Nessel, the first openly gay person to be elected to a statewide office in Michigan. Yeah, back in June, she said that, quote, drag queens make everything better. And then she suggested that every school should have a drag queen. That's the attorney general of Michigan, the, the number one lawyer for that state, re-elected. And I'm sure there are more that I just haven't heard of yet. So I say again. How can humans created in the image of God vote in this way? This is not the first year by far that I voted straight Republican ticket, but this is the first year that there may have been a better candidate for one of our local offices that was a Democrat, but I could not vote for him simply because of what the party he claims affiliation with believes in. I believe that we are under two kinds of judgment, and although Glenn Beck and those like him are right, we should be doing all we can, I think I perceive it from a slightly different angle, I don't believe that we are to try to win God's favor back. I don't believe that we should humble ourselves as an action, as a point of fact, in order to follow an oft-used and overused and out-of-context-used Bible verse. I also don't believe that this is really a judgment for those on the left. I don't think I'm breaking any new ground here, just stating it. This is, I believe, a judgment for those on the right. But if I were to really get specific, which in fact I am right now, I believe this is a judgment on Christians more than on any other group of people. Those on the left, they want this. We, speaking of Christians in general, seem to think that not only should non-Christians act like Christians, but that deep down inside they really want to act like Christians. This is why most Christians don't know how to share the gospel with non-Christians. If the non-Christian is doing good, 
We don't know how to enter into that conversation. We need to wait until their life turns to poo-poo. Then we can jump in and say, God wants to fix your life. Well, I mean, ask the martyrs. That's not necessarily always going to be the case. Unlike what Joel Osteen says, Christians are not promised to have their best life now. In fact, quite the opposite. Fixing a life is not what the gospel is about. It's about a God of love who is also a God of justice, who is also a God of mercy and grace, and his son willingly sacrificing himself after having kept the law, his law, God's law, perfectly, shedding his blood, taking our sin, our inability to keep the law at all in any way, onto himself, and then wrapping his perfection, his righteousness around us like a huge coat, completely covering and engulfing us. The non-Christian doesn't need to have a bad life for us to offer them a good life. They need to understand that they are a willing lawbreaker on the hook for the consequences unless they turn to the only one able to and willing to pay their fine. Back to my point, for those non-Christians, which is, I would say, nearly the entirety of those on the left, I mean, I can't even fathom the mental gymnastics it would take to be a Democrat and a Christian. The pressure in the brain would be tremendous, I would think. They have no interest in being or acting like a Christian. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're happy where they are, deep in their perversion, mired in their filth. And the more filth, the more perversion, the more evil that can be lumped all around them, the better. I firmly believe that these tranny teachers that are pushing for kids to be trannies as well, well, I believe they'll be in the hottest parts of hell, that's first. But while on earth, I believe that regardless of of if they realize it or not, They so hate their own selves and hate their own sin, their utter rebellion and mocking of their creator, that they want nothing more but to have everyone else do it with them so they can hide in the crowd. So this judgment, I believe, is not on the non-Christian. This is not a judgment on the American left. This is a judgment on the American Christian. We're looking at the horrors of this country, the atrocities, the sexual perversion, the genocide, the disdain for humanity, the destruction of our children, born or not, and we, the Christians, are aghast. And I'm afraid that we are poised right now to continue our general laziness, our everything-is-awesome kind of apathy that we've been living in for decades upon decades now. The right is going to win the House, unless a massive shocker happens, and there's at least still a path to take the majority in the Senate. My fear is that if the right takes one or both Houses, Christians go back to sleep. It's okay now. Everything is saved. Or it will be when we get Trump back in there again, and back to sleep we go. This country, because of its founding, because of the Christian roots, has been a very easy place to be a Christian. But this laziness and failure to read and believe the Bible as written— all of it, not just the parts we agree with, has caused us to be like many of the civilizations we read about in the Bible. This is why we've churned out the likes of Kenny Copeland and Rick Warren, Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Real Talk Kim, Michael Todd, Beth Moore, Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson, Joyce Meyer, Francis Chan, and so many others. Now, I can't speak on the status of their salvation— I think some of these individuals are clearly not saved. Others, who knows? But what they are is self-absorbed, narcissistic, money-hungry, works-righteousness, blaspheming heretics. Every one of them. They twist God's word to work themselves into whatever point they want to make out of whatever story or verse fragment they want to take out of context. And this is done for celebrity, wealth, power, or D, all of the above. 
And these are the ultra-popular ones. And remember, this is a fragment of a long, long list of popular so-called pastors and teachers that really care very little to nothing for God's Word or the truth of the Gospel. And we listen to them, and we send them money and grab quotes to post on whatever social media app we're using at the moment. And most of those that follow these charlatans never crack open their Bibles, either on their own or at least to check to see if they're being told the truth, what's something that's actually in the Bible. I believe that God right now is hitting America still relatively lightly, but from two directions. I believe that at least to some degree, God has uh, Romans 1 does. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature." rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So who is this talking to? Well, I'd argue it's talking about non-Christians, but remember, about 112% of Americans claim to be Christians, or at least they used to. But still, a very high percentage still consider themselves Christian because they live in America. But if you don't believe the Bible, if you pick and choose what to believe, are you really a Christian? Better noodle that one out, right? Think it through carefully. This, to me, seems like it applies to all of us, at least in parts, Christians and non-Christians alike. I believe that God has, or is well into the process of, giving America up. Non-Christians, of course, will rejoice. Christians will weep. And America will crumble. I also believe that God is enacting his sovereign judgment, whereas Romans 1 is a more passive judgment. I believe that God is judiciously, actively hardening the hearts of Americans. In the book of Exodus, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is spoken of many times. About half of those times, God specifically told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. The other times, God tells Moses that Pharaoh would harden his own heart. So which is it? Well, clearly it's both. Pharaoh was doing exactly as he desired in his heart to do. He hated the Israelites, he hated Moses, he hated the God of Moses, and he wanted to do everything he could to show that he was God. At the same time, 
God had a very specific purpose for Pharaoh. In Exodus 9.16, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, Let my people go that they may serve me, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Pharaoh existed on this planet, and was Pharaoh, for one purpose. God had one use for Pharaoh, to show his own power, so that his name would be proclaimed through all the earth. And wasn't it? We see that as the Israelites wander through the desert, as they eventually come into the promised land 40 years later, people know very clearly how they were freed from the Egyptians. And look at the world today. This is among one of the most well-known biblical accounts. God sovereignly, judiciously hardened Pharaoh's heart for his glory alone. I believe that this is part of the judgment that God has placed on America. Question. When is the last time you read your Bible, not counting church? Did you pray before casting your vote or going to the polling place? Did you earnestly pray for this election before it started going wrong? Are you praying now for our leaders? Every single person that's in office now and going to be taking office, including the trannies, including Biden and Fetterman, they're all in their position because God put them there. They're not there because of our votes. They're there because God has a use for every single one of them and every one of us. And that use is for his glory. I've said before that my prayer for politicians is that if they're one of God's elect, to change them now and let them do something for good. And if they aren't one of God's elect, then remove them quickly, however he sees fit. So, are we as diligent in our studies and sharing the gospel and praying when the times are good? Are we careful about the content we allow in our lives, both Christian and secular? Are we satisfied with whichever so-called preacher is put on TBN or Daystar next? Or are we listening to only solid Bible teachers and preachers? If the red tsunami happened, would we even think about our spiritual lives? Do we think about it after the votes started rolling in? And let me say, I'm absolutely as guilty and probably more so than you. I've made no bones about it. This podcast is part of my self-therapy. So the question is, are we, and I'm only speaking to Christians now, as I believe that if there is a key to this, it's us. So are we going to be a pharaoh? Are we going to repent when times get hard and the votes aren't falling the way we hoped? And then as soon as the House and maybe the Senate are ours, we just go back to our apathetic ways. Pardon our hearts just a little more. Are we going to be like Nineveh, who repented for a season right before being wiped out, only to fall back into their evil ways and get wiped out eventually anyway? Are we going to be like those in Noah's day or in Sodom, where all we do is only think evil continually until we're destroyed? Or are we going to be like the many, many stories in the Bible where we're judged, punished, oppressed for a time, but then God allows us to refind our way, rediscover him, and through true repentance, we beg for his forgiveness, we beg for his mercy, we turn, and God relents and allows us to come back to him. I don't know. Only time will tell. Unfortunately, we don't have prophets, at least not future casting prophets anymore. But that's not our concern, to be honest. Everyone is fond of quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But this isn't promised to us. All we can claim from this verse is the first fragment. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for 
And then it's up to God to fill in the blank for us in his timing. Our hope doesn't rest in a government or in a majority or in a party. Our hope doesn't come from a Trump or a DeSantis or a Kerry Lake. Our hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven, earth, America, and every one of them and us. Another verse taken wildly out of context and is being thrown around the last few days everywhere is found in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this again is not promised to us. This is promised to Solomon right after he finished building the temple. And God was saying that when he sends plagues or calamity on his children, because they've turned from God to other idols, that they need to remember who they are, who God is, and they need to humble themselves and repent. God hasn't forgotten about them. He'll take care of them. Now, we can't claim this promise for America, but does that matter? This is what we should be doing anyway. This is what we should be about day in and day out, good times and bad. Humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, turn from sin. Healing our land may not be in God's plan, but that doesn't change what we should do. I believe that we're at least getting a foretaste of the end times prophecy, of of those that have been sent a strong delusion so that they would believe a lie. I think we're seeing this with the unsaved population especially, and some Christians even. All the things I listed toward the beginning, there is no way a clear-thinking, clear-eyed image-bearer of God could ever think that any of that stuff is good. But here we are. That's God's act of judgment on this country and her citizens. In addition, man has chosen to be willingly ignorant. Peter states this in reference to man in the last days, choosing to ignore the truth of the Bible, specifically the creation account, but this is the passive judgment of God, allowing man to choose to be ignorant on purpose because they just can't be bothered with the truth right now. So as I bring this to a close, I believe that we're either at an inflection point or or potentially past it. If we humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, maybe, maybe God will relent on this country and allow us to turn back the hands of time to a point where crazy wasn't the norm. Maybe it's too late already. Well, neither of those are our concern. I believe that we Christians must right the ship of Christianity. We must get rid of the heretics and blasphemers. We must ensure that we're reading, praying, following God, and listening to those that truly follow God and preach his word. It at least appears for the next two years we'll have mostly a reprieve from the unbridled madness. But this may be it. There may not be any further stays of execution, as it were. Campaigning and discussing election strategy, voting, helping others to clearly understand their choices, acting as poll watchers, donating to campaigns, all of these and so many more are important with regard to winning elections. But I believe that if we don't have God first in our lives, then we won't have God first in this country, and this may be it for us. More important than all the campaigning and the right candidates is for each of us to truly come to God in humility and repentance begging for mercy for ourselves, our loved ones, and our country. We need to petition God to soften these hearts, to open their eyes to the evil taking place all around them. So maybe instead of an America First or uh, Make America Great Again campaign, we should have a uh, Make God Great in America Once Again campaign. It's a nasty acronym, but you get the idea. So let's join together. Let's, in good times and bad, despite or regardless of an election outcome, commit to knowing God, to coming back to Him, to reading, to prayer, and let's take the judgment we're seeing 
and use it as our wake-up call. We can do all the other things with regard to voting, but without Christians turning from ourselves, turning from our distractions, and going humbly before God, I feel that the outcome of an election will be the least of our problems. We must open our eyes to the looming potential judgment and the unbelievable patience of our God and focus on Him. By fixing our eyes on God, the rest of the world will come into focus, and maybe God will choose to heal our land and grant us a renewed season of fellowship as a country with Him. The New York Times, October 13, 2013, headline, How Activist is the Supreme Court. The New York Times, April 8, 2021, headline, This is what judicial activism looks like on the Supreme Court. The Washington Post, March 1, 2022, headline, The Supreme Court is getting more activist all the time. The New York Post, September 9, 2022, headline, Kamala Harris puts target on activist Supreme Court justices. NBC, November 2, 2022, headline, Vice President Kamala Harris, the Supreme Court is an activist court. The Federalist, November 2, 2022, headline, Three activist SCOTUS justices root for racial discrimination in oral arguments, but six others are skeptical. Now to me, it sounds like this so-called Supreme Court is nothing but a horrible totalitarian type of organization. We should figure out where this thing came from and, and get rid of it, right? <laughs> right? Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 16, part 8, in our look at the Constitution. Today we're going to look at Article 3, which deals with the judicial branch. Now, believe it or not, we're getting close to the end of the Constitution, as the remaining five articles are much shorter than the first two. Well, Article 3 has three short sections, so let's start with reading section 1. We read... The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. So, this is where that dirty activist Supreme Court comes from. Someone should talk to the founders and tell them what they've done. Now, what you'll notice is lacking in this section and the other two sections of Article 3 is that there is no mention of how many judges should sit on the Supreme Court. It has no mention of age, citizenship, nothing. It's a very vague article. This was the case until President Washington and the Congress, no doubt assembled, thought that they maybe should put some boundaries on this thing. So the Judiciary Act of 1789 was crafted and passed. It's a relatively long-winded act. I'm not going to read it verbatim. I'm just going to pull out a few of the notable things and throw them into this segment. You can read it all if you really want to. Link is in the notes. So, through this act, they established, first, a minimum of six justices, with four required for a quorum, with a chief justice, and then a rule of seniority by, first, their date of appointment, and then their age in the case of a tied appointment date. So let's pause here for just a moment. This is where the battle we've had lately about packing the court comes in. We currently have nine justices. The argument is that we don't have to have nine, and that's correct and that we haven't always had nine. And that's correct. 
But for the last 153 years since 1869, which incidentally is only 81 years after the final ratification of the Constitution, so about two-thirds of our existence, we've had nine. We must have a minimum of six, according to this act, but there is no maximum set in either the Constitution or any of the Judiciary Acts. This has been adjusted and modified through various acts, but a maximum has never been set. Now, the Judiciary Act of 1801 made some modifications, but this one was uh, actually nullified and repealed by the Judiciary Act of 1802, which set the Act of 1789 back in place as the governing law. Then there was an Act of 1866, which put back in place some of the 1801 stuff, and then one of 1867 to clarify some things, 1891 to clarify some things, 1925 to clarify some things, but the act that really set the number of justices at nine was the Act of 1869. This retained the Chief Justice, with eight other justices requiring six for a quorum. It did some other stuff with the circuit courts, but the number of nine justices is where this thing was set at this time. Now, we know that there were less than nine prior to the Act of 1869, but there was only one time where there had been more than nine. This was under Abraham Lincoln when there were ten justices. Now, Lincoln made a total of five appointments, and this apparently was in response to a seven to two Supreme Court decision to deny Dred Scott and his family the right to live as free persons. Now, this is not court packing, necessarily. Let me go on. The chief justice in this court was Roger Taney, who had been appointed by Andrew Jackson. Now, Jackson was a slaveholding president that firmly believed in slavery. He was also the president that signed the Indian Removal Act as part of his Manifest Destiny idea, which boiled down said that the white European man owned the United States. Now, as part of this, the Indians were forced on what is now termed the Trail of Tears. The reality is Jackson, judged by today's standards, not a good man. Judged by standards back then, well, history and context can determine that, but I'd say uh, it still doesn't look like a good guy. Oh, and, and just a side note, he was a Democrat. So Chief Justice Taney, in his decision, said that blacks can never be citizens of the United States and did not have a claim to the rights that whites held. Right after this, one of the dissenters, disgusted with this ruling, resigned and went back to private practice. The other dissenter died right after Lincoln's inauguration, and one of the affirmers resigned to join the Confederate war cause. So Lincoln had a number of appointments to make right away. This would have brought the justices, with regard to a Dred Scott type of case, to a theoretical 6-3. to three. Congress, not bound by a maximum, decided that they wanted to add a 10th justice. So, uh, you know, to try to swing this ruling. So they did. Now we're at six to four. And then Taney died and Lincoln appointed his fifth justice. We're at five to five. So a precedent of sorts was set up to swing the court politically in order to get to your goal. Now, the goal of Lincoln and the Republicans, and I just want to say one thing here, the Republicans was to get rid of slavery. Personally, I don't like the idea of screwing with the rules of the game while in the middle of the game, but at least in this case, it was an attempt for something good and right, and frankly, biblical. Now, we have the left that's floated the idea, and I guarantee that if they were to win the midterms, they would have done this, you know, to add an additional two or three or more justices to ensure that they could overcome five or six votes with their side. 
In fact, there is or was a bill, I'm not sure if it's still actually sitting there, called the Judiciary Act of 2021 to raise the number of justices from 9 to 13. No time frame to raise them in, just, you know, immediately, which of course would allow President Puddenhead to appoint four more justices immediately. Their goals, of course, are to get rid of prayer in schools in all cases, to reaffirm abortion across the country, etc., etc. Although I don't like the idea of court packing, um, if we're gonna do it, can we not do it for evil? But we have some editorial-type articles out there saying that the correct number of justices should actually be like 27 or maybe even more. And this has been around since before the overturning of Roe, back to 2018, in fact. They argued this not to try to pack the court one way or another, but to bring it more in line with circuit courts, where smaller subsets of justices can hear cases, thus shoving more cases through the Supreme Court, with only the most important cases requiring all justices to hear them. So, I get what their point is here. I understand what they're saying, but volume isn't really the point of the Supreme Court, and subsets of judges isn't really the point either. This is the top court that takes the top cases with the most impact, reaching what is supposed to be the top judges in the entire country. That's what it's supposed to be. But now we have, well, for fun, let's say eight were nominated as the top judges in the country, arguable, and we have one that was nominated because she's a black woman that doesn't know what a woman is. So, uh, that's our court. So, a few other points from the original Judiciary Act, as this is the one that seems to have been the largest outline and clarification of this entire judicial branch thing. Per the Judiciary Act, they are to hold two sessions annually, one beginning the first Monday of February, the other beginning the first Monday of August. This is also where they divided the country into 13 federal districts with a district court in each of these districts, consisting of one judge who had to actually live in the district. They give some specifics about how many sessions, etc. they have to have here for each district. And then they split the districts into circuits with rules for that. They give all sorts of guidance about numbers of sessions, authority to appoint clerks, etc., how to adjourn and fill vacancies, etc., etc., etc. And then they give the oath of office to be taken. Now, the oath reads, I, first name, last name, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent on me as, according to the best of my abilities and understanding, agreeably to the Constitution and laws of the United States. So help me God. Huh. So help me God. So unlike the oath of the president, this one got the so help me God codified in there. Eh, good. Now, as for the actual oath, basically to be blind in administering justice, which is why Lady Justice wears a blindfold, this harkens back to a variety of places in the Bible, whether that was intentional or not. Pretty sure it was. James 2 speaks about the rich man coming into the church, being sat at a place of prestige, and the poor man being made to stand in the corner or sit at the feet. In verse 4 states, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Of course, today, not so much in the Supreme Court yet, but we see in just about every other court underneath them that activism is taking place, that people are being judged based on ethnicity and color, wealth, celebrity, gender, religion, and the list goes on. Just about any and all demographics are being judged based on demographic first, case law second, with the Constitution being a very distant third. Going on, they laid out some maritime law, including punishment, which could include whipping, not to exceed 30 stripes. Uh, They gave some other general guidance for civil laws and penalties, and some guidance about changing venues based on perception of biases, and on and on. We're only about halfway through this uh, initial Judiciary Act. It was a doozy. They apparently realized that three small sections in the Constitution eh, was woefully inadequate to enact and maintain a judicial system. To give you an idea, this act is about twice as long as the Constitution itself, all just to set up the court system of the United States. All right, well, I think we've about killed, cleaned, butchered, and packaged Section 1 enough. Let's move to Section 2. We read, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treatises made, or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof, and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. That was all one sentence, by the way. Moving on. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed, but when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. Okay, yeah, got that? Good. Now, I'm definitely not going to try and clean this one up. Let's just say that the Supreme Court was given immediate jurisdiction over some things, and they sit as an appellate body over other things, and realize that this was clarified and modified through all of the Judiciary Acts. Moving on to Section 3. We read, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or on confession in open court. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. Okay. Treason. So a traitor is one who betrays the United States by making war against her or by siding with and giving loyalty or aid to the enemy. I think a case can be made for our current president and his entire administration. From the border to our energy to our economy to mandates, the desire to murder or mutilate citizens, I mean, I think a case can be made that he's a traitor to his country and her citizens. The last little clause in this section basically says that if someone is found guilty of treason, their family can't be held liable, and any sort of punishment dies with the guilty party. 
Notice that they require two witnesses. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, think of the Mosaic Law in the Bible. This is found in Deuteronomy 17, for one place. After Moses recounts the various feasts, he moves into the topic of justice, appointing judges in the towns. Much like the oath of a judge in the United States, Moses says in chapter 16, You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice is supposed to be blind. Just rule based on law. Then in chapter 17, we see what would be a capital offense worthy of stoning. If there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the highest of crimes, think of treason against God, deserves death. But this can't be he said, she said. It must be at least two or three witnesses. And those witnesses must cast the first stones. Now in mandating this, it helps to ensure that the witnesses are held liable for their testimony. If they've lied, they're now committing murder, not justice. This is a good system of justice, I think. So it appears that treason against God is mirrored in the human system regarding treason against country. In fact, we can see parallels in various places between the judicial systems in Deuteronomy and the judicial system in the United States. It almost seems like the founders took the biblical system into consideration when setting up our system. I guess they never heard of separation of church and state. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. And with that, we come to the end of Article 3 regarding the judicial system. In our next episode, we'll turn to the states, some specific clauses that affect only the states, and then if we have time, we'll move into the final few articles regarding the Constitution itself. See? We're getting close! So hopefully this episode of the American Genesis has at least enlightened you a bit on our judicial system, our third branch of government. So with that, I shall bid you adieu. Until next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.